So today we pick it up in Acts chapter 2, and we're all the way over in verse 42. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible, because as we're going through the book of Acts, we're covering a lot of ground, because my desire is that um, it, it won't take too long to go through it. That way, uh, we can just have this book in our heart. And so today we're going to actually cover a lot of ground. And so it's just good to be able to look at it on your lap, the, the, the Bible, and to be able to follow along. And in our study today, we're going to see four sections. Uh, first of all, there's a summary. It's a summary kind of the church. And then there's a sign. This uh, lame man who's been healed for, or he's been lame for over 40 years is healed. After that, there's a sermon because the sign is not enough. You need the message. You need the content. You need the sermon. And then after that is salvation. And what we're going to see in our study today is that as we do our part, God will do his. As we do, in one sense, the natural, then God will do the supernatural. You know, if we're faithful to the word and prayer and fellowship and communion, then God will set up what we call divine appointments and people will be saved. And that's what we want. You know, we want to go to heaven. We want to take as many people with us as we can. And that's the mission. You know, remember Jesus even saying, that's the whole reason he came. In Luke 19 and verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, that's what it's all about. Lord, thank you for saving me, but I'm not just going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to do whatever you've called me to do, whatever my part is, so that others would be saved as well, because that's really what it's all about. Even yesterday, I was so blessed uh, going down to the softball game there at uh, uh, Whittier Narrows and seeing... Uh, how many of you here played softball yesterday for the Alvarez family? Would you raise your hand? I know there's a couple of you here. We didn't win. That's okay. Hopefully next year. But um, I think we're going to have to stack a team. But anyways, um, no, I'm just messing with you. Um, what a blessing it was, you know, to see this young girl. She has leukemia, people stepping up and saying, we're going to help the family out by uh, participating in the tournament. And so it's just so cool to see how the Alvarez family is provided for. But I know Carlos and I know Nadine. And at the end of the day, there's something much more important for them. And that is the salvation of souls. And so it was cool talking to one of the guys who went. And he told me that one of the young men there prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And so isn't that really at the end of the day like what it's all about? That, that people get saved, right? It's been said a person may go to heaven without health, without riches, without honors, without learning, without friends. But he can never go there. However, without Christ. And we're going to see that in our study today. And so let's start reading in verse 42. In this classic passage, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 
And so really, verses 42 through 47 is a summary uh, statement. It's a general description of the early church. There in verse 42, uh, such an important passage, if I were you, I'd memorize it, underline it, circle it, highlight it. You know, the four practices of the church, this is what we do. You know, we are, are, are in the apostles' doctrine, so there's a lot of teaching going on. Uh, we're in fellowship, you know, not just going to church, but getting together with people and talking about the Lord and iron sharpening iron. You don't just go and split. You know, you really have that, that koinonia, that fellowship. This is important, teaching, fellowship, obviously prayer, you know, as a church. Uh, there you are as a Christian. And then the last thing is, is communion. And so I encourage you to have communion at home. You know, you don't have to be an ordained pastor to do it. You can, as a, as a husband, you know, you can lead your family. As a single mom, you can lead your children in communion. And you bring out the bread and, and the cup. And you just focus on the cross. That's what the early church did. We see that in verse 42. And as a result of that, Verse 43 says, fear came upon every soul, you know, and, and it wasn't that they were, you know, afraid in, in, a, in a bad sense. There was an awesomeness about the presence of God. You know, they, they esteemed him. They reverenced him. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the one who fears God, who reverenced God, who understands you know, how awesome God is. This is what happens when you're a healthy Christian. You know, verse 43, uh, it talks about many wonders and, and signs were done uh, through the apostles. And so, you know, w this is a summary a statement. Really, the book of Acts is 30 years. And so we see it and we see, you know, miracle after miracle. But you got to understand, this is a 30-year Book And so it didn't probably happen every day, but there were many wonders and signs. And then it's interesting what we read again in verse 44, that everyone who believed they were together, they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so, you know, there was uh, just a sharing, there was a caring, there was a generosity uh, among the, the church. You know, some mistakenly believe this is uh, communism, but it's not. I like what John Corson said. He said, college professors in the 60s and 70s who used this verse to say that the early church was communist missed the marks completely. The early believers were not communists. They were commonists. And there's a big difference. Communism says what's yours is mine. Communism says what's mine is yours. You see, communism is forced. Uh, communism or sharing and caring is voluntary. You know, when you look at this, there's differences and similarities. Uh, unlike communism, it was voluntary and it was also temporary. And like communism, it failed. And we're going to see the situation in Jerusalem was an interesting situation. And I don't know for sure if this was the reason but some say that what happened was that, remember that first altar call? Uh, 3,000 men got saved. And so a lot of people say that when they first got saved, that uh, they didn't want to go back to their countries, that they needed to be discipled. They needed to grow as Christians. And so they stayed in Jerusalem. And so that represented a lot of needs. 
And so, you know, people began, again, selling things, sharing things. But at the end of the day, when you study the book of Acts, you'll find that the Jews in Jerusalem were very poor. So what we find is that, like communism, it didn't work. And so anyways, just touching on these things as we go, I think it's wrong to identify this as communism. It's just a heart of a generosity, caring, and sharing. You know, I see my friend, he's got a nice car, and I say, hey, bro, can I, can I borrow your car? He says, yeah, because we're Christians, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, seriously, though, I mean, you know, you're, you're laying down tile, for example. You're laying down tile, and you can't afford a nice, you know, tile cutter, but you know a brother that has one. You know, isn't it cool how we're, we're like that, huh? We share those things. Not only do they lend, lend you their tile cutter, but they'll come and do it for you or they'll help you. You know, this is the heart really of the early church. In verse 46, there were one accord, it says, and, they, and they're there in the temple. So that's the larger gatherings that are more formal. And then in verse 46, it says they were also breaking bread from house to house. And so you, know, you get together with your brothers and sisters, you know, and... Uh, you're, you're, you're eating together. That meant you're one. I, I have no doubt that they were having communion in each other's houses. That's what the breaking of bread in the Bible had talked about. This is what the early church did. I love the way we read. It was this simple. You know, they ate their food with simplicity, it says. It was joyful. It was a, a favorable life. Um, and then the Lord, it says in verse uh, 47, added to the church daily those who were being saved. Every single day, you know, things were happening. How awesome it must have been. And so what you see right here, I think, is a summary of that early, those early days, a general description, a broad picture, right? But then what Luke does is he hones in on something very special that takes place. And we read now, we go from the summary to the sign it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, now, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, we read back in Acts 2.43 that many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And here is an example of one of them. We read that Peter and John went up together to the temple to pray. Luke calls it the hour of prayer. And so it was the ninth hour. The Jewish uh, clock started at 6 a.m. 
So it's uh, 3 p.m. of the it's the 3 p.m. in the in the middle of the day. Uh, we know that the Jews had three prayer meetings in the temple: uh, 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. And they would go, and you, of course, maybe you couldn't make all three, but you could make one, and you would pray for an hour there. Uh, they say that the time consisted of 15 minutes of silent meditation, uh, 30 minutes of petition, followed by 15 minutes of just adoration and worship. And so it's a cool pattern they had. And it, to me, it's just so cool the way that they just had a heart to pray. You know, it's very, very rooted in the scriptures. Uh, we know David was another who prayed three times a day. In Psalm 55, 17, it says, Evening and morning, and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Imagine what would happen to your family. Imagine what would happen you know, to the flock, to the ministry, to society, if the church began to have the same heart to pray morning, noon, and at night. Imagine what God would do. You know, David was uh, one who prayed like this. Uh, another uh, individual was Daniel. And for Daniel, it was even more challenging because you guys remember the story? Daniel was a, a man in the midst of a perverse nation. And, you know, God had shown him favor and all the other guys were jealous of Daniel. And so they said, the only way we can get this guy is if we try to get him, you know, regarding his relationship with God. And so they signed a petition and they made a law for it to be illegal for anyone to pray to any other God, they said, except for their emperor. And so after that thing had been signed, it said, if you pray to, to your God, we're going to throw you in the lion's den. It didn't stop Daniel. The Bible says in Daniel 6 and verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. You know, we know that he probably got taken to Babylon when he was 12. And so from a very young age, this young man, and then he grew into his 90s, the whole time he was faithful to God, he would pray three times a day. And nothing, nothing, no law, nothing would stop him. And what you find like David and Daniel and Peter and John, when you begin to do things like this, God's going to use your life. Things are going to happen that are just going to blow your minds. That's why the one thing the devil, you know, tries to stop us from, from doing is, is praying. And that's why we have to learn from this. What a, a blessing it is to see Peter and John, these guys on their way to pray for an hour especially when you consider the fact that they had failed in this area before. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you guys remember, Jesus repeatedly asked them to pray, but they chose to sleep instead. Have you guys ever done that? God says, time to pray, and you're like, I can't get out of bed, <laughs> you know? I mean, that was them, and so, you know, they failed. Maybe you're here, you failed. Hey, don't give up, because look what God did in their life. God made them men of prayer, and God might do that to you if you would let him. Remember Matthew twenty six forty. Jesus came to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? And here he is going to the temple in the hour of prayer. You see, God had changed their hearts. 
Peter and John were now under the power of the Holy Spirit and they travel now together to the temple to pray. And so a miracle is about to take place through them. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith, he was a man used mightily by God. And he said, God uses men of prayer. This should not surprise us. Surely, if I want God to use my life, I need to be in constant contact with him. Right? And that's what God wants for our life, you know. And so, as they're on their way to pray, God has a divine appointment for them. You know, one of the things I loved about Chuck is he always would share, just trying to instill within us the mentality that you just never know what God's going to do that day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you roll out of bed, maybe you get on your knees, and you're like, okay, well, here's my schedule for today, and it's good to be organized and to have prudence as far as what you're going to do, but then you're just open. It's like, Lord, and, but whatever you want to do today, there might be some crazy divine appointment that is going to rock this world that will change your life that day. That The key is just to realize the potential for those things and to be open and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happened with Peter and John. You know, they went to the temple. I'm sure they would go to the temple every day. You know, who knows how long it's been, but, you know, they go every day. And then this day, though, God had something special in mind. As they're on their way, um, they, there was a certain man there who'd been lame all his life. It says from birth, right? Acts 4.22, it says that he was over 40 years old. And it's interesting, you guys know in the Bible, right? 40 is the number of judgment. And so in one sense, you know, he's symbolic of the fact that, that we all deserve to be judged. But look what God does. You know, they would carry this guy in and they would lay him there every day to beg for benevolence from the people who walked by. And we, you know, it was a good place to beg. It wasn't in front of 7-Eleven or anything, right? It was in front of the, the, the temple gate called Beautiful. And it was called Beautiful for a reason. Uh, we have a, a couple of diagrams here, I think. I, I want to show you guys real quick just to kind of give you a visual of what it looked like uh, you'll see on the left side right here just the overall diagram. And so you see the, the, the gate beautiful on the east side as it goes into the temple. And here you have more of a, a, a way of just looking at it. And you can see that that, that, that beautiful gate, and we're going to see later Solomon's porch is, is a place where they hang out. But that beautiful gate leads into the court of the women, which would then lead into the court of the men or the Israelites. And so this is where all the, the Jewish guys would go. They would have to go through these gates. The court of the Gentiles was where everyone was welcome, but you couldn't go beyond that. Then Jewish women and then men. And so it's a big gate. It's a beautiful gate. It was an outer gate of the temple and it opened into the courtyard. And uh, it was actually the costliest of all the temple gates. It was made of... Uh, Corinthian brass which was considered the best brass and it was so heavy that it required the strength of 20 men uh, to close it and so there that the beggar sat as he had perhaps for many many years think about that years years some of you guys you've been sitting, you know praying for your loved one to get saved and you're like it's been years or to walk it's been years right 
And uh, who knows? He was probably there when Jesus entered the temple. That's interesting. You know, one of the things you'll find about the Lord is he never failed to heal someone who asked. And so maybe this man never asked for healing from Christ. Maybe he asked for alms. And who knows? Maybe the Lord gave him alms. You know, all I know is that today is, is different, though. Today is his day. You know, the man, again, asked for money. Peter and John are sensitive to the Spirit. After all, they're praying men and they're focused, right? And so what do they do? They say, hey, look at us, look at us. And the man does, thinking he's going to get some financial aid, right? But Peter is broke, kind of like some of you here today, right? (laughs) You know, he tells the man, silver and gold that I do not have. I just don't have any money. This is a quick side note. It's a lot different than some of the things you'll see on TV today. They tell you if you're a Christian, you have to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And that's not the case. It's not. Here's Peter and John praying men sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and they have no money. Okay? Sometimes that happens in our life, right? Where we don't have the funds. I'm sure some of you here can relate. You know, you're like, hey, I just got paid. And your wife sends you a text message. There's no spending money. And you're like, what? You know, but thank God he pays the bills, huh? That's all that matters. You know, I will say this. For those of you who do live paycheck to paycheck, you know, um, you get paid. You don't have a lot of money. Whatever you do, don't get caught in the trap that says, I can't wait till next payday. You know, so I can, you know, you have that to look forward to. This is what I've learned, uh, and it's a good place to be sometimes because you're just completely dependent upon God, you know, but you don't have to really look to life being about all the things that you can get with that type of riches. That's not what life is all about. You shouldn't look forward to your next payday. Life is about a different kind of riches that we have in Christ and that we can invest and that we could spend Every single day. Because if you're just looking to the next payday, you might might miss something that God wants to do today. Because you have been blessed, the Bible says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1 through 3, it says you're already rich. Right? And so right here, Peter says, silver and gold... I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then Peter reaches out his hand and, and he pulls the man up, right? And, and when you look at this, it just took a lot of uh, faith on his part. But I believe it was just God working through him, showing him what he wanted him to do, right? Jesus had empowered his disciples to heal uh, back in Luke 9, 1. And of course, when the Holy Spirit came. You know, when you look at the Greek right here, the physician uh, Luke, he describes in detail what happened. Uh, the blood supply increased to the muscle and the brain sent signals to the nerve endings of the ankles and feet. The hardened fluid between the joints was softened and the atrophied muscles regained flexibility. The, the feet suddenly could bear the man's weight. And he didn't just walk, he leaped. Imagine that. And he just kept on leaping. Notice again what we read here. If you would look at verse 9. It says, And all the people saw him walking and leaping. They heard him praising God and they knew it was him, the lame beggar. 
and they were astonished, uh, bewildered. In the Greek language, it's like their their minds were blown, you know. And uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but it is mind-boggling. And we've seen uh, a couple of instances kind of like this. La- last time we were, or no, two times ago when we were in Cambodia, we were at a certain village, and there was a man who uh, was lame. And he was with a couple of his family members, and there were a couple of team members from you know, the church here, they went and they prayed over him. And all of a sudden, you know, he got out and he started walking. And, uh, and it was just so cool seeing that whole thing, the Bible come to life. Because in those areas, they don't have doctors like we do. They have to really, I mean, they have a lot of times more faith than we do. But seeing him walk, I'll be honest with you, they were not only smiling, they were laughing and they were crying. They were laughing and crying. So the last time we went to Nepal, you know, similar story. We were there and uh, one of the nights they had the Bible college uh, do a dances for us, Nepali dances. And after the dance, then they would share, a couple of guys would share their testimony. And one of the guys has a really cool testimony because over there, Hinduism is the religion. And so if you're out of Hinduism, your family is, it's a huge thing over there. It's hard for you to come out of the cultural family religion. But what happened was this young man couldn't walk. And he, he told his, his parents, his mom, he said, you know, if I become a Christian, then I'll, I'll be able to walk. I know that Jesus will heal me. And the mom gave him permission. She said, okay. If Jesus heals you and helps you walk, then we'll let you become a Christian. And sure enough, Jesus did. And so here we are, you know, we're there, we're watching him dance. Dance. And what happens? Just like this, the people respond. You know, you're smiling, you're laughing, you're crying, you're dancing, you're believing. See, it's a sign. They didn't have money. They, they did have a miracle, though. And we need to know this always. Because I think even for the church, we think that money is the answer. And it's not. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, the story is told that the Pope was counting the silver and gold coins in his coffers one day. When Thomas Aquinas walked in, and the, the Pope said, Greetings, Thomas. He said gleefully, and he held up some coins for Thomas to see. And he said, we can no longer say silver and gold I do not have. Then Thomas looked up at the Pope and said, and neither can we say, rise up and walk. Now, that's not an indictment on the Catholic Church. That's an indictment on any church when we begin to trust in money rather than the Lord. This is what we want. We want that grace to be able to, if he leads us to, and the sensitivity and the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to say, rise up and walk. And sometimes it happens physically. Uh, a lot of times it happens spiritually, where someone finally begins, after however many years it might be, decades of their life, they start walking with the Lord, right? And so there's a sign and uh, um, one of the things I will say, you guys want to know this too, is that the sign is not enough. You know, God can do miracles. There's also what's called lying wonders, uh, miracles out there that are unexplainable. 
You know, the one thing, of course, the devil can't do is raise the dead. And that's what Jesus did. That's what God did, right? And so we know he's our savior. But we need more than a sign. We need a sermon. And so after all this happens, we read in verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or or look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses in His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given this him this, I love this, perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And so, you know, the summary, this is really what the early church was doing. And then, and then the sign, honing in on one of these signs and wonders is then followed by a sermon that is just fabulous by Peter. In all reality, if you just read it, you'd probably be better off. I mean, it's just powerful what, what Peter shares. And one of the things that you'll find about the sermon is he just preaches Jesus. He just preaches Jesus. You know, and that's what we're supposed to do. Colossians 1.28, Paul said, Him we preach. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may pre- present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You know, it really is all about him. We're going to see in the sermon, uh, Peter says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. He's going to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's going to give us the biblical prophecies about Jesus, about the return of Jesus. And he's just going to say, it's faith in Jesus. It's faith in his name that has made this man well. And I like what he says right there. You know, men of Israel, in verse 12, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? And what that tells us is they were staring at Peter and John. You know, and so someone's, you know, walking, leaping, uh, you know, you're tripping out. This guy's been lame for 40 years. Most of us here would probably be staring at the man, right? But, but what happens a lot of times is we start staring at, at, well, who did this? How did this happen? Those guys did. Peter and John did. And then he said, why are you guys staring at us? You know, what we find right here is, a, is an important lesson for us. You know, and this would be a test for them. You know, when if God uses your life, you know, there's a very strong temptation you know, to start this ministry, like Peter and John, they could have started this international healing ministry. You know, sad to see how sometimes, you know, when God chooses to use someone, they like to grab the glory in the story, and it's, it's not like that. If God uses our life, 
it should humble us, not make us prideful because we all know who we are. I know who I am, nothing. The best of men are men at best. If we ever become a vessel for God, let's do what Peter did. He said, no, don't look at us. It's not our goodness, he says. It's not our righteousness. It's the Lord. And he just points them back to the Lord. Peter's smart and he's right on in saying it's not us. It's the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You guys know who he is, right? He has glorified Jesus. He points us to Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done. The one that you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, even though he was determined to let him go. You know, I like what Peter calls Jesus here in verse 14. He calls him the Holy One. Imagine that. I mean, the, the Holy One, there's no one like Christ, right? The greatest words ever spoken, the greatest works ever done, died for our sins, was put in a grave, rose the third day, has changed the world, not through violence, but through love. There is no one like Him without sin, holy, yet He bore our sins. He calls Him the just the just and in the book of Romans he's called not only the just but the justifier right and he makes us right with God it's a legal legal declaration of righteousness that one day when we stand before God in his presence because of our faith in Christ we will have this justification stamped over our life it's a legal declaration of righteousness in the sight of God You see, he's the Holy One. He's the just. He calls him the Prince of Life. And in the Greek language, it's the originator of life, the author of life. You murdered the author of life. Imagine that. John 1.3 says that he made everything. Jesus did. And what Peter is doing is he's pointing them to Jesus. And yeah, you killed him, but... You know what? He, he rose from the dead, right? And in looking at this right here, what we find is that Peter is sharing this sermon and it's not us, it's Jesus. He's the one that's made this man well. And so um, he says, you know, but I know, and now he's going to start reaching out to them, that you guys did this ignorantly. Look at verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. Do you guys remember uh, what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, even though they should have known better that he was innocent and beautiful, they didn't know that he was God. And so he says, now he's going to start reaching out to them. You guys did this ignorantly as did your rulers, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And I encourage you, read Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 53, and it talks all about the suffering servant who died for the sins of the of the guilty, even though he was innocent. And you read that, that chapter and you're like, well, who could this be? It can't be Israel because they're not innocent. They didn't die for anyone. But you read it and it's all about the suffering servant. You see, they didn't realize that their Messiah would be the suffering servant. You know, they they didn't realize that there were two comings. At first he came as a lamb. Eventually he'll come as a lion. You know, he says, therefore, in verse 19, repent 
and be converted. I love this, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, you know, Peter is sharing this sermon and and at the end of the day, he has the same heart of God. I want these people to be saved. And so repent, therefore, you know, stop being unbelieving. Believe in Christ. It's faith in him that saves. And then you're converted. Then you're turned. You're turned into a different man or woman. And then, this, you know, God will blot out your sins. Imagine that. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin because you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And then he says right there in the times, I love this, times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. I mean, to me, I don't know. I just picture this life and I don't know, in in a uh, desert, sweaty, hot. And then all of a sudden I see a big pool and I jump in or something, you know. I mean, I mean, not only here, because this is what will happen when you get your life right with God. When you find the love, when you find the forgiveness, when you find the power, the power that says, I don't, I don't want to sin. I want to please God. It's a different life. It's a different husband. It's a different wife. It's a different person. When you find that, then you have these times on, on earth that are just absolutely amazing. And then, you know, there's those times in heaven. I mean, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus, not just his first coming, but even his second coming in in verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. You see, it's not just the sign, it's the scriptures. It's not just the miracles, it's the message. These things are put together and what Peter does is he roots it in Scripture, he says in verse 22, for, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And here Peter goes back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. If you were to look it up, Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19. That great prophecy where Moses said that one day there would come a prophet like him. And Moses gave the message that came directly to him from God. And that's exactly what Jesus did as well. And he said, you guys got to hear him. When that prophet comes, listen to him. Because if you don't, If you don't, you're going to be judged. That's what he says. He says in verse 24, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You, you Jews, right? You're sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's going back to Genesis 12, verse 3, that the salvation for the world, all the families of the earth, it would all come through a Jew. Right? And that Jewish you know, message of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, the Jewish Savior that came, if through your seed, Abraham, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. And so Peter, in his sermon, he's just backing everything up with the Bible, right? And so he says to you first, and of course this goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning every one of you from your iniquities. And, and what we find, and we're getting ready, you know, to celebrate Christmas, is that, you know, it's, it's about Matthew one twenty one, where it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that's what the Lord has done. You know, to turn us away from our iniquity. You know, for me, it was drugs and alcohol and profanity and all the crazy things that came with that. One day, God took it away. God overpowered me with his grace. And, you know, he turns us away. Sometimes it's not overnight, but it's a process. But he will give you victory, right? Not only uh, over the power of sin, but also over the penalty of sin. Because God washes it away as we place our faith in Him. You know, what we find is that God really wants to move us to this place of being saved. You know, I know you guys here, most of you, in first service, most people are are saved in first service because you guys come earlier. (laughs) And there's something about, you know, just waking up early and don't tell second service I told this, but, you know, you guys put God first. Anyways... (laughs) You know, but there might be somebody here who doesn't know the Lord. You know, you're not saved. I will say this, that God loves you. He died for you on the cross. He rose again. And all you have to do is believe and you'll be saved. You know, the the other night, my wife and I, we were at the, um, um, I think it's called Downtown Disney. And we were Downtown Disney. There were a couple there. They were Jehovah Witnesses and they were sharing their watchtower information. Nobody was going up to talk to them. And so Shelly said, hey, we should, you should go talk to them. And so we went up and talked to them. And I just said, you know, can I just ask you a question? Like, I want to hear it from your, you know, own mouth. How is someone saved? And they told me, well, you have to believe and you have to live a certain life. And I said, that's not what my Bible says. You know, I understand that that living a life is important, but it doesn't save me. Jesus' life and death saved me and resurrection. You see, when you believe, I'm not talking about your head, I'm talking about when it happens in your heart, when it's faith, when it's trust, when it's true, then God will come in and then God will give you the capacity to live the life. Living the life doesn't save me. Living the life is fruit and it proves that I'm saved. And there's a big difference. And so that's what happens. When you believe in the Lord, when you trust in Him, then you will be saved. Are you really a Christian? Are you, are you sure? You're like, yeah, you know, I, I even know people who are Christians. I mean, their name is Christian. I'm a Christian. That doesn't count. (laughs) You know, that would be like, you know, me liking liking to iron my clothes. And they say, hey, you must be an iron man. No. uh, (laughs) I go to church or whatever. I have the bumper sticker or my, you know, my uh, 
Maruka, she's a Christian, or whatever it might be, you know. My kids, I don't know. Some people, they have strange mentalities. I knew one guy, he said, he said, I know for sure I'm saved because my father-in-law's a priest and my, my uncle's a pastor. It's funny. Are you sure you're saved? You know, I was thinking about all these things that are going on in the world today. You know, a lot of guys are getting busted for their sins, huh? A lot of guys, man, it's just coming out. It's being exposed and, and you know what? Um, in one sense, I was just thinking, you know, that's probably the best thing that could happen to them. You know, to, to let the sin, those things that, that they've been doing that are wrong, let it come out now. You know, so number one, for number one, they'll realize it's wrong. And, and number two, they can deal with it before they die. Because if they don't, then one day they're going to have to stand before God and it'll be too late. We're all sinners, all of us here. And we got to deal with that now. Let Jesus wash away your sins. And as you do, then one day when you stand before God, you know, you'll be good. He's our only hope. He's our only hope.